This is an ABC podcast. On the 5th of June 1912, the coal mining community of Maitland in the New South Wales Hunter Valley woke up to an interesting story in their local paper. It was near the bottom of page six, a summary of a new report in Popular Mechanics, and it read, in full... The furnaces of the world are now burning about two billion tonnes of coal a year. When this is burned, uniting with oxygen, it adds about seven billion tonnes of carbon dioxide to the atmosphere yearly. This tends to make the air a more effective blanket for the Earth and to raise its temperature. The effect may be considerable in a few centuries. That was 1912, 110 years ago. A couple of column inches between a story about subterranean Russian rivers and pearl divers being killed by getting their arms stuck in clams. The same article was then republished in 12 other newspapers in coal mining communities around the country. It was the first time the Australian public had heard about the concept of carbon dioxide raising the temperature of the Earth. 110 years later, this little problem is playing a major part in an Australian federal election campaign. Technology will have the answers to a decarbonised economy, particularly over time. This is a government that's frozen in time while the world warms around it. This is the sixth election in a row where climate change is a top issue, but we've got little to show for it. In Australia, we're sitting at almost the exact midpoint of an incredible century-long story. This is extraordinary. We've never done anything like that in all of human history. But all our leading politicians have to offer is promises that very little will change. It will not cost jobs, not in farming, farming, mining or gas. It is not a revolution but a careful evolution to take advantage of changes in our markets. And any changes that are coming are small. This plan will create jobs, cut power bills, boost renewables and reduce emissions. It's a plan that acknowledges what business wants. Some think trying to play down how much change is on the way is a mistake. The idea that the public are not interested or too stupid to engage in a conversation about how you can make the country better is, I I think, completely wrong. Well, let's find out. I'm Matt Bevan, and this is Australia If You're Listening, a podcast about why Australia's found it so hard to tackle climate change and what that means for the future. It's a, just a monumental disgrace in my view. That was a very important moment historically. There was a great hole and fire erupted from this hole and a great darkness descended over the land. You can't rule out the nuclear option. We do have a history of pirating things in Newcastle as well. A chaotic transition is one of the worst things that can happen. We were very focused on clean coal technology. Three times as much electricity generation in Australia as what we have today. I feel as if it's only this year that the penny has dropped. It looks a lot better than it did, say, five years ago in terms of what we can achieve. What happens next? Well, um, I don't know. This is the story of a change that is bigger, scarier and happening much sooner than you think. But maybe, just maybe, we can turn it to our advantage. This is a speech at a conference in Canberra in 1997 from an American climate sceptic. There is 
a strong and internally consistent body of evidence that climate change is not the beast that it was once feared to be. The event was called Countdown to Kyoto. It was aimed at convincing the Australian government to oppose US President Bill Clinton and Vice President Al Gore's push for global action on climate change at the upcoming UN convention in Kyoto, Japan. I do believe that your continuing opposition is essential to those of us in the United States who are opposing the Clinton administration. Australia's Deputy Prime Minister Tim Fisher was there. Little old Australia, contributing less than about 2% or less of world uh, greenhouse gas emissions, but to be clobbered with a 1.5% reduction in its GDP, the closure, in reality, of a coal mine or two in the Hunter Valley or Queensland, the loss of jobs and everything else. As was the Environment Minister, Robert Hill. A uniform European-type target would be devastating to the Australian economy and to Australian jobs, and we would therefore not accept it. But we are hopeful that that won't be the outcome from Kyoto. The conference didn't run completely smoothly. It was put under siege by activists. Without warning, Greenpeace activists raided the conference venue. Once inside, they refused to budge. Outside, a giant banner had been unfurled. Tensions were high. Ahead of Kyoto, the Australian government said they would not be offering to cut emissions, but planned to ask permission to increase them. Shame on hell! Shame on Howard! Shame on Australia! This hectic period in late 1997 is where a lot of people think Australia's climate change battle begins. But it had actually been going for a long time by this stage, more than two decades in fact. It starts with a scientist in a wheat field. When I first joined CSIRO as a young scientist in 1971, it turned out that my first task was to actually measure carbon dioxide exchange with wheat crops. This is Dr Graham Pearman. 51 years ago, yes, 1971 was 51 years ago, he was working at the government science agency CSIRO trying to increase wheat productivity when he came across something interesting. Almost by accident, we measured the carbon dioxide concentration in an absolute sense. That's its absolute concentration. Pearman and his colleagues found that the concentration of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere was around 330 parts per million. So 0.033% of the atmosphere. To their surprise, this was the same number which had been measured by a scientist in Hawaii named David Keeling. We found the numbers were almost the same, and we simply, as young scientists, could not understand how that could be. It's an interesting sign of how little was known about the atmosphere at the time. Scientists didn't realise how much air moved around the planet. At that time, we didn't have, and the world didn't have, such a good understanding of the, the relative rate of mixing in the atmosphere between the two hemispheres. But the key thing here is it got Pierman and his colleagues to start reading the work of the guy making the measurements in Hawaii. When we started looking at those, we thought, well, we need to check. He thinks it's going up, the concentration's going up. Graham Pierman in Australia and David Keeling in Hawaii were using the same method to measure carbon dioxide involving a tube. In the early 1800s, this exact method was used to make an interesting discovery. Simple experiments with radiation put in one end of a tube and measured at the other end, and then the tube was filled with different gases. And uh, it was shown that uh, these gases actually absorbed some of the energy as it went down the tube. 
The scientists conducting these experiments in the 19th century were trying to answer a simple question. Why is the air warm? Obviously in the daytime there's the sun, but why is it still warm at night? Or when it's cloudy? By filling their tubes with different things, they discovered that some air molecules trap heat. It wasn't until the end of the 1800s that there was an attempt to look at whether this was a problem for the climate of the planet. And this was when the Swedish scientist Arrhenius published his work where he calculated if you doubled the CO2 concentration in the atmosphere, what kind of warming you'd get, something like three degrees. It was this research that was written up in Popular Mechanics magazine and then summarised in coal country newspapers across Australia in 1912. The trouble was, nobody was paying attention to whether the total amount of carbon dioxide in the Earth's atmosphere was changing. That changed in the 50s with David Keeling in Hawaii. It was 1957, I think, was the date when he started his measurements. He had come to this conclusion that maybe we're changing this concentration. Graham Pearman and his colleagues at the CSIRO wanted to check Keeling's work. In the early 70s, they started doing their own measurements in Australia. So we set up an aircraft monitoring program where we established our own standards and started making the measurements. And very quickly, within about a year, it was clear that Keeling was correct. The concentration was going up. This is the part of the movie where the music gets really dramatic and the scientists start to stare at each other in dismay or start frantically scribbling on blackboards. One moment you're studying how the atmosphere affects wheat crops, the next you're strapping carbon dioxide monitors to planes and learning that we're boiling the earth like a frog in a pot. Graham started doing interviews to explain to Australians what was on the way. The main concern has been uh, that the climate will change and... uh... We've, as well as we can estimate, if it continues on along the lines that we've seen in the last few years, the estimate is that we could have about a half a degree average warming by the end of the century. That was Graham Pearman in 1976. His estimate of half a degree by the end of the century was correct. What was it like having dinner party conversations with people and people go, oh, so Graham, what do you do? You know, what, what are you working on at the moment? And you had to tell them, look, I'm working on the potential apocalypse here. How did people react when you sort of broke the news to them of the terrible things that could potentially be on the way? Basically, you, you are seen as an extremist. We were regarded as uh, tree huggers, environmentalists, in the most derogatory uh, sense in many, uh, many places. But by the late 1980s, alarm still hadn't turned into despair. It seemed to Graham and his colleagues around the world that once governments understood what was happening, they would rally and come up with some sort of solution. When I look back, I had fairly naive views as to how quickly human societies could actually turn this around. One of the issues, the way he saw it, was the fact that he and other climate scientists couldn't be specific about what a warming planet would mean. More of Australia will experience the impact of monsoonal rain and uh, the prediction at the moment, albeit tentative, is that most of Australia will experience more rain. More rain. That could be bad or good, depending on whether you're a golfer or a farmer. 
the ability of Australian farmers to take advantage of that situation is something that I couldn't really comment on. Graham could describe how the climate would change, but not how that change would affect agriculture, industry, animals, plants, coral, property, insurance, bushfires, politics, tourism, food, water and everything else. The climate was warming. So what? Climate scientists like Graham couldn't answer with anything other than their best guess. To fix that problem, they had to get other scientists on board too. The whole reason for doing this was a climate science saying, I know quite a lot about climate science Mm. uh, and what my colleagues around the world uh, think about climate science. But I have no idea of what this means to agriculture, for example. Please, Mr Agriculture, come here and tell me what you think. In 1987, Graham Pearman convened a big conference at Monash University in Melbourne. The most important conference ever held in Australia on the greenhouse effect. The conference was called Greenhouse 87. The conference follows increasing international concern about expected dramatic changes in the world's atmosphere in coming years. Hundreds of experts gathered to talk about how a warming climate would affect their patch. For the first time, we've got together people who are experts in the various potential impact areas of climate change and ask them to spend time thinking about what it means to us, the Australian community. Pearman had given them a scenario. Here's what the climate could look like in the future. On the basis of the best information we had as to how climate might change, how much temperature change would be, how much rainfall change, the distribution of rainfall in Australia, how sea levels might change and so on. And we gave that to them as the basis for them to think about whether this is important or not. Many of the people who were there were hearing about the climate change issue for the first time. Reading what was discussed at this conference with the benefit of 35 years of hindsight is quite something. It's a bit spooky how accurate their predictions were. Obviously, there was the threat of the sea rising as the warming planet melted the ice caps. Well, I'm afraid uh, that's one of the risks you take when you live in a, a beautiful location either adjacent to a river or the sea. But other effects were more surprising. CSIRO scientists presented the world's first paper on what climate change would mean for bushfires. Higher temperatures and lower humidity meant more widespread fires, according to them. Seems obvious now that we're living through it, but this was news to everyone gathered at Monash. There were presentations on what the scenario meant for the Murray River, irrigation, tropical cyclones. As for what it would mean for energy... The experts suggested that without a significant breakthrough in renewable energy technology, Australia may be forced to build nuclear power stations. The CSIRO had been working on this for over a decade. But after Greenhouse 87, climate change wasn't just a problem for climate scientists. I think we had a community went away from that meeting with a very different set of education, really, than what they had when they they went in. The conference spawned experts in the effects of climate change across a number of fields. It rallied the academic community behind this new problem. But the great challenge was still to come. Convincing the public. One of the predictions put forward at the conference was that the public and government would be unlikely to respond until the effects of climate change started to become obvious to everyone. Which is kind of a bummer, really, but also, unfortunately, is exactly what happened. Watching archival footage of the news in the late 80s, it's quite Twilight zone 
Climate change, or the greenhouse effect as they called it at the time, was a new problem and dividing lines between sceptics and believers, city and country and Liberal and Labor hadn't been drawn yet. But in the 10 years after Graham Pearman's Greenhouse 87 conference, two decisions were made which really set the tone for what we're familiar with now. One by the Liberal Party, the other by Labor. The first one came in 1990. Seldom has a decision here in Canberra been awaited with such trepidation by scientists and environmentalists. Greenhouse was the big one. On the night of the 10th of October 1990, a marathon cabinet meeting was underway in Canberra. For hours last night, cabinet argued over Australia's role in the warming of the planet. Sitting around the table were two ministers dead set on getting their colleagues to back a big greenhouse gas emissions cut. This has been the subject of so many arguments that I've had over my life including, you know, arguments with some people who are really good mates of mine in business who don't accept it. This is Graham Richardson, one of the two Labor ministers keenest on tackling climate change. I have had lots of arguments and will continue to have them. But once you, once you believe in something, then you stick with it. Richardson had already been through the process of trying to pass an emissions cut once, back when he was the environment minister and scientists first demanded action from the government. He tried to get Prime Minister Bob Hawke and Treasurer Paul Keating to back a 20% reduction to our emissions. And what was the response like in Cabinet? Negative. <laughs> Keating, in particular, was scathing about it. Uh, he became a convert, but when he was hit with it, he uh, reacted pretty angrily. You know, he just said this will mean the loss of a lot of jobs. And not only does that mean we lose government, but it's just, it's our people who are going to be losing the jobs. You know, we're supposed to stick up for them, not throw them on the scrap heap. Since then, there'd been a federal election. Here is the policy statement for the Liberal Party for the federal election. Both major parties had promised to dramatically cut emissions. The Liberals will take action to reduce greenhouse gases by 20%. Labor had won and stayed in government. Graham Richardson was given a different portfolio and handed the environment over to Ros Kelly. Did Graham give you any advice when he handed the portfolio over to you? None. <laughs> None. The Environment Minister gig was not an easy one. In my day, everything was a battle. Like, every single thing was a battle. because, it, And it was all about development versus environment. Ros Kelly says the battle wasn't between the major parties, but within them. Yes, it wasn't strictly, you know, Liberal versus Labor. It was individuals within each of them... Probably one of my best supporters was the shadow environment minister, and that was Fred Cheney. And he was just a strong supporter of almost anything I did and a joy to work with. When you took these various green policies, including emissions reduction, to the Cabinet, who was the primary opponent, the, the, the most difficult egg to crack? Alan Griffith, the Minister for Resources, he and I were always at each other's throats. Like, seriously, it was tough. What about Paul Keating? See, the difficult thing is that Paul Keating was my colleague and probably my closest friend. You know, Paul's a big picture person and he's very obsessed with the economy, but he could also see what was, I think, coming. I think what he could see what was coming and he... He definitely supported me. So the big cabinet meeting arrived, October 1990. Ros Kelly was trying to get the 20% emissions reduction promised at the election 
through the cabinet. Argument was fierce. Although most ministers agreed of the need to do something about greenhouse, several warned of the cost to industry. Key supporters of cutbacks were the former Environment Minister, Senator Richardson, the Prime Minister and the Treasurer, Mr Keating. After hours of debate, Ros Kelly emerged with a big grin to face the media. I don't want to be seen in terms of loss win for me personally. It's much bigger than me. Oh, look, I was so relieved because, you know, you've got to work out a strategy. How do you get something like this through? I knew I was going to have a major battle on my hands and that's why we had to put that um, special clause in about um, doing it in line with our trading partners. Ah, the special clause. By the end of this episode, you'll realise how big of a deal a 20% cut to emissions would have been. But it never happened. Instead, the legacy of that meeting ended up being the special clause, which came to be known as the No Regrets Clause. The decision is conditional. Implementation will depend on similar decisions being taken by other nations. In the policy that was passed, there's a a paragraph that reads, and I'll I'll read it to you. It says, while recognising the need to restrict emissions and aim for a 20% reduction, the government will not proceed with measures which have net adverse economic impacts nationally or on Australia's trade competitiveness in the absence of similar action by major greenhouse gas producing countries. Obviously, that's the, that's the... That's the clause. That's the clause that I put in. I knew that was the only way we'd get it through. So Australia would act on climate change, but only if it didn't cost our economy anything and if other countries moved first. This clause drew a line in the sand. And any Australian leader who's tried to move beyond it in the decades since has experienced a spectacular fall. With this long, late-night cabinet meeting, the standard for climate policy had been set. Climate action? Sure. But only if it won't cost us anything. Here's Labor leader Anthony Albanese in January this year, saying Australian coal producers will not be asked to reduce emissions before their overseas competitors do. One of the things that our plan envisages is that uh, no one, uh, no company, uh, will be asked or have any uh, restrictions imposed which are greater than its competitors. Because what that does is to use one of my mum's old uh, phrases, you know, cut your nose off to spite your face. Soon after Ros Kelly's submission was accepted by Cabinet, Australia went into recession and the issue of climate change was essentially forgotten. But not by everyone. Greenpeace activists struck just after dawn immobilising the coal train by blocking rail lines at the Morwell coal mine. This is 1994. Before dismantling their blockade, the protesters called for a range of measures to cut carbon dioxide emissions, including a carbon tax. By the end of the decade, it wouldn't just be protesters demanding the Australian Government Act. The global community had joined in too. The day before the Kyoto Climate Change Conference in Japan was due to kick off in 1997, organisers were surprised to find something unexpected on every meeting table in the main conference hall. Australia's opening gambit was to get to delegates early with a carefully laid out explanation of its position before the conference started. The Australian delegation had put out slick brochures explaining that they didn't intend to cut carbon emissions, like all countries at the meeting were being urged to do. Instead, Australia wanted to be allowed to increase them by 8%. Australia has been pushing hard to be allowed much higher emissions than other developed countries, 
a stance that has attracted little support or sympathy. The delegation knew that would be controversial. Shame on hell! Shame on Howard! Shame on Australia! So they wanted to get ahead of it. The brochure move didn't work, though. Every last one of the brochures was collected by confused ushers. It wasn't easy then, and you can argue even that it's still not easy for Australia to communicate its position in a way that convinces others. This is former Liberal Senator Robert Hill. Throughout the 80s and most of the 90s, he'd been involved in education, defence, trade and foreign policy. But the day after John Howard led the coalition to victory, he woke up with a surprising new job. Shepherding the flock, along with Mr Howard, will be Tim Fisher as his Deputy and Trade Minister, Treasurer Peter Costello, Senate Leader Robert Hill, who'll be Environment Minister. Anyway, I woke up to be Environment Minister, and the environment had proved to be a very difficult issue for the coalition, even of the view that we'd lost elections on, on not managing the environment issue well. Now Robert Hill was in Kyoto. There was a major focus on what Australia might need to do. A lot had already been decided about what the rules would be for various countries. Firstly, it had been decided that the baseline year which carbon emissions would be measured against was 1990. So whatever your emissions were in 1990, that's what you were cutting from. It had also been decided that countries would be divided into two categories. The convention basically divided the world into the developed states that had caused the problem in the course of their development through burning hydrocarbons since the Industrial Revolution and the rest of the world, which were sharing in the pain of it, in some ways you could say suffering unfairly because it was being said that they would have to restrain their emissions. So split into developed countries and developing countries. It was agreed that the developed countries would have to act first as they had caused the problem. And clearly Australia was going to have to accept legally binding reductions in its growth of greenhouse gases. And that was clearly going to have economic consequences. Research was commissioned which controversially said significant emissions cuts would be devastating for the Australian economy. The way the world is potentially heading would hurt us more than other developed countries. The situation was complex. European countries were making it clear that they wanted all developed nations to agree to the same cut to their emissions, no matter who they were. We're, we're happy to fairly share the burden, uh, but not to take an unfair share. It was the Liberal Party's turn to fight about climate change. And again, there was a battle in Cabinet over what should be done. Slowing our rate of growth to 108% was basically where we got to through that process. So... 108% of what it was in 1990, an 8% increase, in other words. This was the no regrets approach in action. Action on climate change was worth doing, but not at the expense of Australian industry or economic growth. Robert Hill also says he didn't want to make a commitment Australia couldn't keep. Australia's always determined to deliver on its promises. And he expected that the commitment at Kyoto was simply the beginning. And the whole concept was that as time went by, there would be a ratcheting effect and you'd be expected to deliver more and more. And you would be adjusting your economy over those years in order to be able to do so, you know, without having a destructive consequence. The conference was extremely tense. Just a few days left for delegates at the crucial climate change conference in Kyoto to try to reach agreement on greenhouse emission levels 
the task ahead seems almost impossible. Some countries which faced more obvious threats from climate change were outraged at the way debate was proceeding. Countries like Nauru. No nation has the right to place its own misconstrued national interest before the fiscal and cultural survival of whole countries. The crime is cultural genocide. One of the sticking points was that the world's biggest carbon emitter, the United States, had been pushing for an agreement which would only see a return to 1990 levels, not a cut. With only days to go, Vice President Al Gore arrived in Kyoto. Fearing the talks were on the brink of collapse, he brought a new offer to the table. I am instructing our delegation right now to show increased negotiating flexibility. Gore offered a US emissions cut of 7%. Pandemonium began. The conference finally looked like it could succeed. But for Australia, the news was grim. Environment Minister Robert Hill has told the conference Australia can only be part of an agreement if emissions from land clearance are counted in emission measurements. Land clearing. This was a huge demand. See, 1990 had been an unusual year in Australia. We had chopped down a lot of trees that year to use bushland for farming, mining or development. And chopping down trees causes carbon emissions. In 1990, 24% of our carbon profile was made up, of, made up from land use change, which is basically land clearing. But Kyoto was in 1997. And for various reasons, in the seven years since 1990, we'd been cutting down fewer and fewer trees. And as land clearing slows... Of course, the emissions from land clearing are reduced and we get credit for the difference. Australia was unique in this way. If land clearing was included, we would get a big head start. It's like that TV show The Biggest Loser, where contestants compete to lose the most weight. Imagine that on the day of the first weigh-in, Australia got to put on a big backpack full of chopped up wood. Then, next weigh-in, we took off the backpack and we were halfway to winning. If you were one of the other contestants on this show, you'd be pretty upset. And at Kyoto, the other countries were outraged. But in the chaos, Australia's demands were written into the final agreement. This inclusion of land clearing in the calculation of 1990 emissions became known as the Australia Clause. The outcome of the climate change conference in Kyoto represents a splendid result. The Prime Minister John Howard was ecstatic. We win for the world environment, and it will be a particularly gratifying result for Australia. Depending on your politics, the Australia Clause is either a good starting place for a federal emissions reduction policy or a climate change cheat code. should not be used as an escape clause to allow Australia to avoid its responsibility to reduce our pollution. We haven't really seen cuts to Australia's greenhouse growth. We've simply seen an exercise in mathematics. We'd committed to limit the growth of emissions to 8% higher than they'd been in 1990, which we did end up achieving. But the only reason we achieved it was because land clearing was included. If not, Australia's emissions would have peaked at 128% instead of 103%. Most of the apparent progress Australia's made on emissions cuts since then is just down to this one decision. Looking at it in hindsight... Do you have regrets about the policies we took there and about the way that that played out? No, I think that um, I think we were quite right, and I'm 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 a proud Australian in saying that we've uh, we've committed since then to three separate targets, and we've delivered on the first two. 
and we're going to deliver on the on the third. And I'm expecting further targets that are going to be tougher, but that we'll deliver on them as well. I was keen to find out if Ros Kelly thought that too. Robert Hill is often described by people who are in favour of very serious action on climate change, very quick action on climate change, as a villain for what he did at Kyoto and the target he took there. Do you think that that is unfair? I think it's totally unfair. You've also got to think what it's possible to achieve. I think he was a really advocate of the environment and had his heart in the right place. You've got to remember, you do reflect the government that you represent. It's very hard. I don't know how he managed to achieve what he did because he didn't have a lot of great supporters in the Cabinet. The impression you may have got from all this is that there were several moments when things could have been different. Aggressive actions were suggested, argued for by determined scientists and politicians on both sides, and promised at elections. But perhaps that was all just a product of naivety and happened at a time before the grim reality of Australia's economic and cultural situation set in and compromises started being made. This is politics. Inaction is part of politics. Um, And if you get disappointed in action, you're going to be a very disappointed person all your life. A realisation dawned on our political class that among developed nations, we were uniquely poorly positioned to deal with this issue. The issue for Australia was that um, we had a, a very carbon-intense economy. You know, we'd grown our wealth through building that carbon-intense economy. Cheap coal was our energy source. Probably, yeah. I think that's a fair, uh, a fair assessment. Mm. But being disadvantaged doesn't mean you don't have a go. Mm. You know, that just it might make it harder to have a go, but you're still duty-bound in my view to have one. And over the next 25 years, climate policy would become a wrecking ball through the top levels of Australian politics. Australia, if you're listening, is written by me, Matt Bevan. It's produced by Sam Dunn and Will Ockenden with research by Lexi Metherall. Our series producer is Jess O'Callaghan. Next. As the pandemic sees thousands of people leave Sydney and move to the nearby city of Newcastle, many who buy older homes find something peculiar. You see a lot of um, old homes and they have little fireplaces. People get confused because you can barely fit enough wood in them to start a fire. It's because the fireplaces aren't meant for wood. It's not made for wood, it's made for coal. Newcastle houses were built with coal fireplaces because coal was literally everywhere. Sending little kids out along the railway tracks to pick up coal uh, was quite common for poor Newcastle families because you could find it. Coal has been vital to this place since before European settlement. The Awabakal are noted as being the only Aboriginal group who incorporated dreaming stories of coal. The whole city was built on it. In fact, the country was kind of built on it too. For more than 200 years, Newcastle has been the epicentre of the fossil fuel industry in Australia. So what will happen to our economy once that industry winds down? That's next on Australia for Listening.